Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew. What's shaking, everybody? How you doing, Albert? Wow, that was a lot of enthusiasm. I'm not really accustomed Dude, to I'm that. Dude, I'm so happy you. to talk to you, man. Well, now that just feels sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> like, I... If it's any indicator of uh, my personality type, personality type, I uh, I clearly don't take well to enthusiasm whatsoever. You don't take well to enthusiasm. You don't appreciate energy. You don't like pep. Yeah, I don't enjoy praise, uh, giving it or receiving it. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't like receiving praise, Albert. I don't like receiving praise. I don't like giving praise. I definitely uh, know you don't like giving praise. <laughs> that much is obvious. Well, now you know the flip side of it. <laughs> I hate it just as much as I as much as I hate pretending to give it when I on occasions where I have to give it. Okay, okay. <laughs> just so anybody listening to this, I just want you to know if you know me personally, then anytime I've ever given you a compliment, it was fake and it was begrudging. Yeah. <laughs> I really can't wait until you become a father. Uh I can't wait until be, I become a father, a husband, uh you know, a teacher, <laughs> a role model, what have you, you know, all of these things and they're all just going to be destructive in nature. You you would be the kind of guy that other people will look up to striving <laughs> with all their might hoping to earn your respect maybe even win some words of affirmation perhaps even praise and you will never give it to them no matter how hard they work no matter how successful they become they will just exactly. continue to languish in what they perceive to be mediocrity because you will not acknowledge how great they truly are exactly my most common response is always going to be a sneer nice man <laughs> we should definitely start doing video podcasts <laughs> i thought you were gonna say nice man you should definitely have a child <laughs> oh that too that too <laughs> i wonder what would happen if you raised a baby and all you showed your baby from birth was, was contempt? a sneer yeah your contempt <laughs> like would that baby just learn how to sneer like you I imagine that that child is going to have a pretty messed up disposition. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you have to inherently understand what joy is to know, uh, to to understand what not having joy is. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's a philosophical point that uh, I must consider. Yeah. If only uh, we did an episode about that, but we're not because today we are going to continue our annual read-through of Deadly Class. Don't you mean monthly read-through? Monthly read-through for the year annual. Look, man, <laughs> don't, don't try to trap me with your legalese. I'm just... <laughs> You know matter, what I meant. It's just a matter of being precise with our words, man. You don't want to get sued. Somebody's going to be listening to Who's this. Gonna and sue like, me? Who's going to sue me? The clock king? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Calendar man. man? Calendar <laughs> man's going to sue me? Who's going to sue me? <laughs> Who's going to protect this? You? 
but yes. Um, yeah, let, let the good folks know. Uh, the, the people behind Deadly Class, Drew. All right. So every month this year, we are reading through one trade paperback volume of Deadly Class. Today, this month, this episode, we are covering volume two, which is titled Kids of the Black Hole. Deadly Class is created and written by Rick Remender and Wes Craig. Uh, and Wes Craig is the artist. It's colored by Lee Luridge, lettered by Russ Wooten, or as we call him, Wooton, and edited by <laughs> Sebastian Gurner. Wooton Clan, y'all. <laughs> Ain't no clan like the Wooton Clan. <laughs> so, volume two. Kids of the Black Hole collects issues 7 through 11. The trade paperback edition was originally released in March 2015. And if anyone is interested in hearing us bloviate at length about the series overview or the creators in general, you can check out the first episode that we did on Deadly Class last month. Yeah, sounds good. So, do you want to go through our standard uh procedure where we go through the chapters or is there anything you want to mention before we we jump into it i don't think i have anything to mention before we cover our issues Mm -hmm. so if you're prepared to dive into the issues we can do our usual commentary and discussion i think all the topics i had jotted down will come up naturally as we discuss the different issues in this volume sounds good to me so i'm gonna start off with deadly class issue seven and fair warning i wrote the description for this pretty late last night so there's a chance that i might sound like a drunken sailor in terms of what i'm describing so i'll try my best to make sense of it as i'm reading it (laughs) and i promise you every issue after that that i wrote up the notes for have been more well i had a clearer head when i was doing it so the issues after the after issue seven will probably hopefully make more sense hopefully the first one will make sense but you know fair warning that's all i'm saying yeah between the gutters we get better the longer you listen to us yeah sure okay (laughs) (laughs) deadly class issue seven we open on a violent attack in san francisco by a shadowy shadowy group of hicks There's no real indication of who they are or how they are related to the story yet. It has been a month since Chico's death. Marcus and Maria are together, but he has many doubts about them. And really, there is still a part of him that is drawn to Saya and is on. And really, he's only with Maria for superficial reasons. Maria, for her part, has become unstable. Murdering Chico really affected her, and she hasn't been the same since with her mood vacillating between euphoric joy and manic depression. One night, Marcus and his friends step out to attend a party. Marcus's roommate, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but Shabnam? I'm going to go with Shabnam. I think Shabnam. So. Yeah. Marcus's roommate, Shabnam, asks if he can come along, but Marcus makes up an excuse. Shabnam accepts it, but he knows he's been brushed off. 
At the party, he meets Lex, the host. He's a pretty pretentious teen who has snarky observations about music, but Marcus sees him for what he is, just another bully, and calls him out in front of everyone. Marcus and Saya exit the party before things get really heated and share a moment together before an arrow almost strikes Marcus. Maria has been spying on them, and she took a shot at Marcus to get proof of Saya's romantic interest in him. In spite of the intensity of the recent events, the two reconcile while Saya watches from the shadows. We find the band of picks from the earlier attack. They have a plan to build a reputation for themselves as, as serial killers and learn that they've been taking direct, and we learn that they've been taking direction from Chester Wilson, the shadowy character that has been obsessed with Marcus from a, distant, from a distance from the previous volume. One of the crew sees Saya's figure in the distance. We find ourselves in Ma oh yeah, um, we then find ourselves in Master Lin's office as he reads from Marcus's diary, learning about Chico's death. Shabnam, it turns out, is a mole informing Master Lin on Marcus's goings-ons, and that is the end of issue or uh, issue seven. Yeah, first of all, a couple of comments right off the bat. I thought it was pretty funny how you described the opening scene as an attack by a group of shadowy hicks. That's a <laughs> that's a description that I probably uh, never would have imagined before reading this comic. It's really? Just a, well, why not? Now I'm curious. Know. I don't know. You don't I'll, think you don't think Hicks can form a shadowy secret organization? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess they could. There's there's nothing to uh, preclude them from doing so. Yeah, there is nothing in their hick nature that stops him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's nothing in the hick guidebook that says that they are incapable of forming bonds and groups that of a true. secret nature, of a secretive that is, nature. That is very true. <laughs> and, and the other thing that made me smirk is the idea that that uh, the way you described Master Lin at the end of the issue reading marcus's secret diary there, there's something funny about that that makes me think of a parent sneaking into his teenage daughter's room and you know reading his daughter's secret diary <laughs> it's interesting that you bring that up actually because i did have a thought a similar or parallel thought while i was reading this series or this volume um the thing that occurred to me was it kind of made me think of, oddly enough, something like the X-Men, right? Where I think the way that the X-Men were written at a certain point, you might say that that point being the Claremont era or whatever, uh, I think the path that a lot of writers took was to take the the, the drama and the... Um, What's the, what's the word? The, not not uh, to take the drama and the uh, melodrama of mm -hmm. of these teenagers and to propel it to a more severe status, making that drama more adult and a realistic. Right. I, mm -hmm. I think that has mm -hmm. been kind of the trend of comics for a long time is finding a way to take the the dramas of high school kids and you know 
make us as the reader believe that these are like really serious things. But there's something about Deadly Class that feels like it's almost the opposite of that, where the situations that they're involved in are pretty deadly serious. And on some level, their behaviors are more adolescent and more immature than than you would expect you know it's it's the opposite track where the things that they have to deal with are actually more serious but their behaviors are just as adolescent and immature as real teenagers i don't know if that's something that you felt when you were reading it i don't think i consciously thought that but that makes sense when you put it that way actually in my notes i i did jot down something about how after reading, you know, 11 issues of the series so far, there are things in here that do remind me of Uncanny X-Men, the Claremont era in particular. And it's... Yeah. And now, now that you mentioned, like, the whole uh, inversion of the way that... Claremont they, does it. Yeah, it's like the the way that uh, Claremont handles melodrama versus the way that Remender and Craig handle melodrama mm. is inverted because i feel like with the claremont comic whether it's x-men or new mutants or whatever he was doing in the heyday of his of the 80s he did like to do stories where the stuff that the characters faced i mean i think in his mind it was usually he made it sound more super dramatic yeah Yeah, more serious than it really was yeah exactly of course there there were some stories that kind of warranted that amount of seriousness like there were some stories where you know, like, I know you're not a fan of it. We're not really fans of Claremont. But, you know, stuff like the Dark Phoenix Saga would be a serious thing because it's, you know, a galactic cosmic threat that threatens all of uh, the planet and probably even the existence. existence. Exactly. So you got stories like that. But then I felt like he tended to treat almost all of his stories with that level of gravitas. So then mm-hmm. the X-Men could be fighting Dracula and it would be the same level of, you know, heightened tension. They could be in murder world fighting arcade, you know, and that's, and you know, that's basically like the them. most dangerous villain that they've ever fought. <laughs> right, right. It's like yeah. how how much deadlier can it be inside a gigantic pinball machine with, you know, yeah. deadly traps and stuff. Yeah. Even though, that's you the, know, on the surface, as a reader, you, you look at that and you're just like, man, that's corny or that that's pretty silly. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. within the story, I, I felt like, for the most part, it was taken seriously. I think I think he, he did try to, like, make it lighthearted at times and tell jokes. But for the most part, it felt like the characters, maybe they acknowledged that they were in ridiculous circumstances, but... I felt like the way that they acted and responded, it's they still treated the situation with seriousness. You know, it wasn't played off yeah. as a total farce. It Overwhelming a, seriousness at that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I felt like that characterized his style of writing. Whereas, well, with, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just gonna say the the contrast is that with with Deadly Class, it's like you said, uh, the stuff that the kids in in this comic are facing is pretty serious in terms of uh, life and death stakes. Maybe there's something comical about the idea of a cabal of rednecks who 
are about to, you know, cause a bunch of mayhem and mess people up. But the way that the kids respond to the threat, they're in a school for assassins, so they they do know some things in terms of how to how to hurt people and how to plan attacks. But they're also so immature and inexperienced that, you know, in the later issues in this volume, we'll see them fall into situations where they could be overwhelmed, mm-hmm. and and then the way that they handle and and handle the situation and respond to it and the way that they interact with each other is like you said very adolescent and not so mature yeah yeah i think one note that i can make that sort of highlights chris claremont's attitude going into his comics is i feel like he's a guy that thinks he's writing Shakespeare comic books as as Shakespearean drama. Right. Mm -hmm. So he'll take, he's, he's, he's writing a story about this group of teenagers and let us not forget that those early X X X-Men comics, they were teenagers, right? Well, I I, I don't know if they were, I don't know if they were teenagers when they were, they were young adults, I'd say. You're right. You're right. Yeah. They were young adults. Well, they were still young, young people, right? Yeah. Young people. And even the drama of their interpersonal re, uh, interactions with one another, where you know you have people that fall in love with each other, people that fall out of love with each other, people that betray each other, all that stuff. It's it's really played to the most heightened sense of melodrama that he can play it for, because again. Uh, it's it's almost like he thinks he's writing these as Shakespearean characters. The fact that he calls so many of his stories sagas, right? That's That's got to be an indicator of something, <laughs> of just the level that he thinks that he's writing on. Well, what are you the know, sagas like, he's crafted, man? There's the Dark Phoenix Saga. The Demon Bear Saga. The Demon Bear Saga. The Muir Island Saga. I what feel like we're the... missing something. Wasn't Asgardian Wars a saga? <laughs> I don't know if he called that it a saga. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but I, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, the, but the other thing I was oh sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, but I was gonna say again, just to you know reiterate that fact. So it it felt like they were young people really acting older, playing uh dealing with these stakes that were. Even the most minute stakes were just kind of well over their heads. Whereas, again, these teenagers in this, they actually are dealing with these really deadly things. But in terms of their behavior, they act very much like real teenagers in the sense that there are moments where, while I was reading it, where I was reading what the kids were saying, and there's some truth or some revel some revelatory uh, observations that they make right but at the same time when you keep reading there you, you hit a point where it's like wow this is this might be a little pretentious or like you know there might be something about this kid where where it really does feel like he's channeling a teenager who thinks that they're way smarter or way wiser than they actually are mm-hmm. 
you know? So it's, it's, I think that's a pretty hard thing to put on paper because, you know, if, because it's not the type of thing that everyone and anyone can just pick up when you're reading a book because it's also open to interpretation, right? Yeah. But, but if you're reading it, there are some people who will read it in earnest and they will take it at face value uh, and assume that what's being said is what's meant. Whereas my interpretation of it is a little harder to um, just, uh, not justify, but to support because, you know, again, it's just purely based on my reading of, of it, but it does feel like there are times where he absolutely perfectly captures what it sounds like to be a pretentious teen who thinks that they know everything about the world. Yeah. And I feel like with that character in particular, uh, forget his name, but the you're talking about the British punk kid, right? There was a kid named Lex who Lex, yeah, who that's who yeah. I'm thinking of. He he's in the later issue, but at one point he's at this party and he's just looking at all the kids and he's just kind of bloviating about, you know, good music, what makes good music and you know, observations about what's real, you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm looking at the page now. Yeah, that that's the scene I was thinking about too. It sounds a lot like something that you would hear college kids talk about when they talk about art and things like that. College is that time period, I feel, where people start to really hone in on their personal tastes and the things that they like in terms of music and art and movies and things like that. Young people can tend to obsess so much about the things that they love that mm. sort of defines their identity. And I, th I think that's possible for adults to do as well, but it's far uh, more awkward when you do it as an adult. As someone who's reading a story about young people, that's the kind of thing that rings true because you expect to hear a pretentious teenager or young adult spout something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that, yeah. you know, we've, we've all met people in real life who are like that. And, you know, I'm sure Rick Remender has met a ton of people like that when he was young. So yeah. it feels like a scene that's from real life. It's interesting that you mentioned that this is the kind of behavior that a college student would exhibit because i think in our last episode of this you mentioned that rick reminder might have taught at the academy of art yeah and that's that where right? you're gonna find a lot of pretentious yeah. art kids man exactly so it makes sense that he would know what that sounds like because he's just surrounded by he's been surrounded by that yeah um as a student and as an adult so mm -hmm. he knows he knows how to how to capture the essence of that inflated sense of ego and importance and self-worth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the other thing the other thing that I'd add is even though Lex's response is I mean, even though Lex's behavior is ob it's it's obvious that Lex is full of crap. I, I felt like when I was reading that scene, it almost felt like Marcus's response was even though it's it's his response was the kind of thing that you would want to say to to a person like Lex. 
there's a part of him there that also feels kind of pretentious too, you know? Oh um, yeah. I mean, he, it, he doesn't come out that, looking like a hero or anything. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's intentional. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's almost equally as inflated when, when he's talking down to Lex, like he might, in that moment be right in saying you know you're just a bully you but you know instead of using your violence or your fist you're just using your your image and your words to push people around but you know what kid doesn't have a rebellious streak that doesn't take that moment to get up on their high horse and make a scene uh, of of this situation by showing every other teenager or young adult in that room, this guy is not the guy who knows what he's talking about. I am because I see right <laughs> through him, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, he, he literally calls him a poser, and that's that's just such a, I don't know, that just feels like such a teenage thing to do is, it's the posers calling other posers posers, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, th- I do think that's kind of emblematic of, Marcus as his char- as a character because he, he's he's not exactly at least in in my mind I I don't personally think that he's an endearing protagonist he's an interesting one a fascinating one to read about but he's not somebody where I'm rooting for him because I really appreciate his attitude or his character you know it's more just Something fascinating is about to unfold here, and I'm with him through all that, you know. Yeah, and I think I don't things think like this, would... and I think things like this really do capture that tension between showing that he says some things that are technically correct, but he's also abrasive himself, and he's also, you know, you wouldn't want to be friends with somebody like Lex, but. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't want to be friends with somebody like Marcus either. Yeah, yeah. And when you mentioned that he's someone that you don't necessarily root for, it's it's weird because he is the protagonist of the story and he does have this pretty tragic backstory. And I guess from a certain perspective, if you were a certain kind of reader, you would look at this and you would go, yeah, I root for him. Like he's he's the underdog, so I want him to succeed. And you know, all these other people are trying to kill him. So yeah, he's 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 the good guy. He's he's the perspective that I'm taking. So yeah, he should be a good guy. I should want to root for him. But I don't. <laughs> I don't think most people read it with as much nuance as that. Maybe. Like I. I, I, maybe uh, <laughs> if a young person if i were younger and I, I was reading this for the first time yeah maybe i'd be like oh yeah that's that's telling him marcus that's what you're supposed to yeah. say but i it feel might, like as an older you, guy an older man reading this now yeah i feel you know just there's just more of a distance between the character and me so when i read it i don't feel that same sort of uh closeness because i'm not in that stage of life my mentality is totally different how i'm not a reckless idiot (laughs) not in the same way he is at least (laughs) (laughs) Uh, when i'm reckless my mortgage gets ruined (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) 
I forget to pay my insurance bills. <laughs> um, I was going to say, it, it reminds me of something like Fight Club or something where when you watch it when you're in your 20s compared to when you watch it when you're in your 40s and you really think about it, it's a pretty different experience where mm. in your 20s, you watch it and you root for Ed Norton. Heck, I'd even say there are a lot of people who root for Brad Pitt in that movie. Yeah. But <laughs> when I watch it in my 40s, I'm like, they're all kind of just terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> I should rewatch you know, that. That's a good point. There's, yeah, there's a lot of it where, especially you know, in the age we live in now, where all these people have really formed their identities around that movie, <laughs> which is pretty bizarre when you think about it. There's there's a big chunk of it where it's about how, you know, Brad Pitt's character is just the quintessential alpha male who just tells the truth and isn't afraid to tell you the truth because that's what you need in life is someone to just be just so brazenly honest with you and to make you you know just rant and rail against the 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 superficial trappings of society and you know reconnect with something pure and animalistic yeah but, you know, in my forties, I, I, I've got a house. I got a mortgage. I I like being able to live in a house. <laughs> you know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> um. Yeah, but yeah, you you make a good point about that. Where this this dissonance does really alter the way that you view the story. There is another thing about Dudley Class that made me think of Claremont and uncanny x-men and just his writing style in general and it's it's not anything that's necessarily tied into what we just discussed but i think i've noticed i'm noticing uh, especially uh looking at volume two as a whole i feel like the serial aspect of the storytelling does remind me of a claremont comic in a way and i think it's just got to do with how the the plots from, I guess, the subplot or the B plot. I don't even know if it's really the B plot from Volume One, but the just the way that the what's the name of the main Hick character with the messed up face, Chester. Uh, Chester Wilson. Yeah, so think like the way Wilson, that Chester yeah. showed up in in Volume One, that was kind of a a slower burn. You know, they took their time revealing him to the reader and. Uh, there were other things in the plot in volume one that took the forefront up until the, I guess, the explosive moment when you finally see Chester in in volume one. And then, so like from that point of view, he's more like the, I guess, the secondary subplot that's going on in the background because in volume one, you're getting introduced to this world. You're learning all about uh king's dominion and how they do things there and the interactions and relationships between all the kids and the families and backgrounds that they're from you know that's all the stuff that's being built up and then they go on that trip to kill the one kid's father in in vegas so you you have this Billy. clear yeah bill so you have this clear mm -hmm. sense of action that's progressing while Chester is operating in the background. And then 
uh, all of a sudden he does something at the end of volume one that you know rightfully causes him to become the, the main concern here in, in volume two so you get a chance to see i guess the shift where he starts off as this sort of background plot and then becomes more important as volume one goes on and then when we get to volume two he becomes the primary antagonist of this particular story arc and then while that's happening in volume two we even get more stuff that presumably sets up uh, a bigger plot in a volume down the line you know something like uh, the end of this issue where you see his marcus's roommate is actually a guy who's reporting to master lin on marcus's activities and sharing his diary and just makes you wonder what is this gonna lead to like why is this why does a uh, master lin have why is he trying to keep such a close eye on marcus and learn all these things about him like what's the payoff going to be but you don't really get a resolution to that part uh in volume two you just get this little snippet here in, in issue seven and and then you know i assume that as we continue reading that's going to become more important so you know that's just one example um we, we see a lot of these subplots being laid down uh underneath other plots you know it's mm -hmm. something that we also saw a lot when we read invincible and i think invincible yeah, pays yeah. a lot of tribute to that old style of superhero storytelling where you you do that kind of thing because you have the luxury of building up uh, these plots beneath plots so that when one is finished cooking, you have another one that's already simmering and then you can you know unleash that one upon the world once the first one is finished mm -hmm. off. It's kind of different from how. I think, at least in my mind, I feel like it's different from how a lot of current or recent or modern superhero comics are told. I mean, I wouldn't even call this, this isn't even a superhero comic, but I guess just how a lot of modern mainstream comics are, it's usually a situation where there's like one big ongoing plot that kind of takes the forefront the whole time. Mm. And then there's like a break before you move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of Invincible too when you were mentioning that and yeah, it's 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 definitely an older style of storytelling that you can do when you have the luxury of a really long format. And yeah. I guess they can do this presuming well, you know, Kirkman with Invincible for example, Past a certain point, I'm pretty sure he was confident that he was good to go for issues upon issues. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. From what I remember when we were talking about it that first year, he wasn't too certain about being able to just keep on doing it indefinitely. But certainly after a point, he saw that they were able to just keep on doing it. And that's when I think you can tell that something changes in the underlying machinery of invincible <laughs> and all of a sudden he's just got plots and subplots stacked on top of each other yeah it's the kind it's of thing that go. makes you yeah. wonder how people like him or remender keep all 
keep track of all that stuff. Like it'd be pretty interesting to yeah. look at uh, their story notebooks or something, you know, where they just jot down their ideas or their outlines to figure out <laughs> how many issues one certain plot is going to take up and then when the next one is and when he's going to introduce something else that's going to get bigger later on. There's something fascinating about the underlying mechanics of the storytelling itself, but I don't know. It's To me, that's part of the fun. Maybe some people don't really concern themselves with that kind of thing, but for me, I, I do appreciate the the additional, I guess, complexity to the story mm. with Deadly Class, because there's there is still a good amount of of uh, plotting in just this one issue in issue seven. You know, you have all this stuff going on, stuff being introduced with the shadowy Hicks. You have all this stuff uh, with Marcus and his roommate and Master Lin. You have the stuff with Marcus, uh, Saya, and uh, Maria. The whole, I guess, the love triangle, so to speak. That's something that's kind of like this emotional, this dark emotional <laughs> element to the story. And then you get other things that are just briefly introduced but recur later on, like Marcus working at the comic book store, which is a pretty funny scene. I enjoyed that too. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Have you got anything else to say about issue seven or you want to move on to issue eight? Did you have any thoughts about that scene in the comic book store where the comic shop owner is talking to Marcus about Wally Wood and all this other stuff? <laughs> I, I guess my only thought about that was it just felt like a scene that was instantaneously recognizable to me because it feels mm -hmm. like that's almost every comic book store like maybe right. not every it, comic book store I've ever it was been 1988 to, but, but that easily could have been like 2023 exactly exactly i like again like i said it's not like every comic book store i've ever been to has been exactly like that but i've definitely been to comic book stores that have been like that <laughs> yeah 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 so it's it's a recognizable trait for sure it's kind of funny to see just or at least to imagine this comic book store because it, it doesn't look like any comic book store that i recognize in san francisco i mean granted in the 80s there were a lot more comic book stores i mean even growing up in the 90s i remember a lot of stores that used to be there that are no longer there today but uh yeah it just kind of made me wish or maybe wonder I wonder if this store was based on an actual store that Rick Remender had visited when he was younger, living in SF, or if he just made it up. If, if he just got the artist yeah. to be creative. I mean, that's the interesting thing about the way that he draws San Francisco, where even though we know that he spent a good chunk of time here, he doesn't, I guess you could almost say he doesn't really pander to us by constantly showing us there's the golden gate bridge there's the coit tower he doesn't just give us landmark after landmark as a cheap and easy way of of saying yeah see duh this is san francisco see bridge yeah but exactly what he does is he draws it like a real place like a real city yeah so i do appreciate that yeah was craig just draws it like a any other kind of city like if, if they didn't say it was yeah, san francisco yeah. i don't know if i would recognize it yeah yeah 
uh, I'm looking at a page or, or a panel with it, and it's called Lost Innocence Comics, I think. That's that's definitely yeah. not a shop that's familiar to me. I'd I'd be curious to Google that after this podcast just to see. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty funny how Remender ended up giving Marcus a job at a comic book store because I think I read that Rick Remender used to work at a comic book store at some point when he was younger too. Yeah. Huh. So I wonder if there's just some part of him where he, he does feel like he relates to Marcus on some level or like Marcus is kind of a, not necessarily a stand-in, but I don't know. You know, sometimes sometimes there's a part of the author inside the character that he creates, you know, even though it's not like a one-for-one translation, it's more just like this part of my life. uh, Yeah. This character kind of represents this specific point of my life at some point. Exactly, exactly. I'm looking at this picture here of the comic book shop that uh, Marcus is working in and they have that little booth on the side. I don't know if I'm just taking just one element of it and trying to project my recognition on it, but it does look a little like comics experience. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it's interesting. It's, 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 it's funny because they just had a sale uh, two or three weeks ago where they closed down or took apart their discount bin, their back issue bin. Yeah. And they've got one of those right there that's just like it. That's true. But that's maybe true. that's just the thing that that's making me think about it. <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious to see where he bought his comics when he lived in the city. Yeah, that's a good question. I actually, and this is a little unrelated to this, but well, um, I, I'd say that I'd save it for a later podcast, but I, I'm afraid I'm going to forget, so I'll just put it out right now. Mm-hmm. One of the guys that he works with is Jerome Pena. Oh, Rick Remender? Right? I mean, like, yeah, he's worked with him on a couple of things, right? Yeah, quite a Other few things. Other than Seven to Eternity. Yeah, quite a few things, right? Yeah, they did and some the thing... the, uh, Uncanny X-Force. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did that um, Avengers graphic novel, Rage of mm-hmm. Ultron. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right, you're right, right. So they're familiar with each other. Mm-hmm. But the thought that I had the other day was... I think they might have done some occurred... Fear Agent, too, but I could be wrong. I forget. Ooh. The thing that occurred to me was if Opinions from San Francisco also. Exactly. Exactly. But the thing is, um, Rick Remender was a teacher at the Academy of Art. And I remember when I was in New York, I actually spoke with Jerome Pena and we talked a little bit about the city and it turns out he went to the Academy of Art too. So I was like, I wonder if they knew each other from there if that's why they're so comfortable with working together could be are they the same age i don't know if they're the same age because i think jerome opinion is pretty young he looked uh, well i don't know if he looked like he was my age but he looked like he could have been around my age if not younger oh okay so you, yeah. you think maybe remender was one of the teachers there when opinion was a student yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious to to look at the years that they yeah. were there and to see if they overlapped, if there was any uh, you know, connection from that because that that'd be kind of a cool 
origin story for the two of them. <laughs> yeah. It's a good yeah. way to find your collaborator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got anything else? Nope. Let's take a look at issue eight. All right. Issue eight. Deadly class issue eight. Marcus and Saya meet on a rooftop, and Saya comes with news. She has tracked down Chester Wilson and his gang of degenerates. But before they move on them, she wants to know Marcus's history with Chester. He gives her his journal with details about his life in the period after his parents' death. For nine years, Marcus lives with a daily routine of cruelty and abuse at the hands of headmistress Rank, her staff, and his roommate, Chester Wilson, the same Chester Wilson. The home he has been placed in more closely resembles a prison than its namesake. After almost a decade of abuse, Marcus has finally had enough, and he has devised a plan to escape. After sneaking out enough needles in his cheeks, he tricks Chester into ingesting poison that induces seizures. When the staff come in to check on Chester, they are confronted with an IED, an improvised explosive device made of fireworks and the needles that he's been sneaking out. Amidst the fire and chaos, he makes his his escape. Having leaving that life and all of its nasty characters to presumably burn to the ground. Saya hugs him for all the things he's had to endure as Maria comes up on them with an accusing look. Saya steps back and reaffirms that they've found who they're looking for with the invocation that they're going to make everything right. That's the end of issue eight. Here's my first question. But when you were reading this, were you confused a bit when you saw the date on the first page? Because the first page of issue eight is February 1st. But then in issue seven, it said it was March of 1988. So it was one of those things where it, it made me wonder uh, what the why we went back in time to tell this portion of the story, but it wasn't really played off like uh, a flashback or anything, you know? Like, I feel like if he didn't write down the date on the first page, I wouldn't have, like, nothing would have really clicked with me in terms it of, been like... A linear, it could have been a linear course of events, so it didn't need... There wasn't anything signifying that it needed to have a flashback. Is that what you're saying? Essentially. Right. Like the only the only thing is the last page when Maria finds them on the rooftop and she kind of gives them both this this look. And I, I guess that sets up the attack or the ambush scene in the previous issue. But then it kind of makes mm -hmm. me wonder how come they didn't just make this issue seven and then make issue seven, issue eight? You think there's any kind of significance yeah. or like what's what's the uh, reasoning behind it? I think this is a situation where my ignorance has worked to my advantage because I didn't even look, I didn't consider the date. I didn't even really look at it until you had mentioned it. Okay. So, reading it in a completely linear fashion, it made absolute sense to me, and I didn't. Again, I didn't really stop to think about it or to take time and energy to really ponder it. So, okay. Now that you I mention it. It's, I, it's kind of weird. You're I right. You were the one who was talking about it to me earlier this week because earlier this week you asked me a question about what do you think about it when a, a story tells you a flashback within a flashback. 
So this is kind of a flashback yeah. within a flashback, right? Uh, well, I was talking about a flashback within a flashback in terms of the other things that I had watched and experienced over the course of the week. I didn't, I don't think I was necessarily applying it to deadly class, but that being said, first of all, I need some clarification. When you said that this is a flashback within a flashback, are you saying that it's a flashback because it takes place on February 1st, but it's also a flashback because they're in the 80s? No, a flashback because we got this extended sequence covering Marx's origin in the home he grew up in, in the group home. Oh, right, right, right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Um, yeah. Uh, well, again, my ignorance of not even realizing that the first issue, issue seven, took place in March, whereas this issue took place in February, like that really. That just skipped my mind entirely. So again, I just read it as this entirely linear reading of the story. Oh, okay. Because I, I feel like the only yeah. thing that this, like putting it here, uh, that last page of, of issue eight, where we have the scene with all three of them on the roof, I feel like that does kind of set up the scene at the end of issue seven. But if you're... Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, like, if you're reading it from the point of view where you didn't realize that this issue takes place a month before the previous issue, like, how did you interpret that scene on the last page when Maria is looking at Saya and Marcus? It's like she tried to kill them well, in the previous issue, and now she's just okay, you know, standing there and looking at them. <laughs> I mean, they're all kind of. Uh... The, the way that they interact with each other is is generally all over the place. So That's true. Even even in the later issues, when they go out on the mission to kill Chester and, you know, the 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 group of rednecks or whatever you want to call them, like realistically speaking, if that animosity exists, which it clearly does, it, it wouldn't be a good idea to have her going with them on this mission. Especially yeah. considering that what we've learned in issue seven is that she's in such a delicate state of mind that she's pretty unpredictable at this point. True. So true. I just, I just took it as, Oh, that's just kind of the nature of their relationship. They're friends, but they're also, you know, teenagers with pretty... raging hormones and mood. Exactly. Swings. Exactly. 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 So, you know, when, when in issue seven, when Maria takes the shot at them, it's, I mean, even in that moment, Marcus loses it on her, but, you know, she, she talks about it in terms of, I, I, I knew that she was going to save your life, so you weren't in any danger at all, and, you know, I only did it because I love you, and for <laughs> them, that makes sense, because they're teenagers and they're idiots, but and <laughs> in, in, in a world where that's the logic that you're working with, and it made sense to me that at the end of this scene, when she sees them together, there's, there's always going to be this tension between the three of them, but they find a way to just coexist in spite of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess that's just how my mind works. <laughs> no, that's, that's fair. I, I understand yeah. that. I really like the 
artwork on the rooftop scenes those basically like the framing sequence of the issue is really nice looking like i'm looking at just the first three pages of this issue where you have saya and marcus on the roof and the the use of the bluish or the light blue color scheme with the blacks and whites yeah and how clean and precise everything is just every panel has this like really crisp framing there's something about it that kind of reminds me of like david aha it's it's interesting to look at man like i'm looking at the second page in particular where you like that first panel right and you have marcus standing near the edge of the fire escape or the ladder um and there's this distance between the two of them as he has his back turned to her even though they're talking to each other and then the way that the the last eight panels of the page are laid out where you get these evenly sized rectangular panels and each one of the first tier of four shows him slowly opening up his backpack and then in that bottom tier of four panels he just breaks through the panel borders he you know he's he's crossing through the gutters man and handing her the book there's, there's just yeah. something interesting to look at man it's i guess it kind of shows you that that moment where he opens up the backpack it's a slow paced moment you know because it's extended it's dragged out over all these over four panels and kind of shows you that he's putting a lot of thought into taking this act of trust with her you know he's showing her yeah. something that he doesn't show anybody really so it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting way to build up a scene even though it's not like a splash <clears throat> page or something flashy i feel like that's a good example of smart storytelling and just a way to to build up the tension and to you know show the reader that there's a lot of emotions at play inside him even though mm-hmm. He doesn't have to say anything you know it's all the artwork that's doing the talking here with the body language and the layout i like it man yeah and then like page three Same here page three there's a a wordless middle panel a horizontal rectangular panel that takes up the middle of the page where you have them yeah. again like just the framing of it is interesting because they're both on opposite ends of the of the panel marcus has his back turned to her but he's looking over his shoulders, looking at her. And there's a, a silhouette of another building behind Saya. So that building is colored just a little bit of a grayish blue, while Marcus is just above this flat light blue b- background. I don't know. There's just something I like about the way that drawing looks. It's it's good, man. Like, just the the use of colors, the... The positioning of the characters. This is some good art, man. It's just fun to look at. It's beautiful stuff. Yeah. I mean, color plays a big part in this particular issue. Uh, once you get into the the flashback sequence of it, yeah. you, you get entire pages that are just sequenced to one particular color. And that being said, I do think that these early pages where the definitions of the characters and the figures are are at their clearest you know indicating this is the present right or their mm-hmm. present at least and 
and uh, you know place that against the the that bluish gray tint that they use on this first page i, I really do like that bluish gray uh uh tint that they they put on this too uh it's 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 a, not not the hugest thing but it's it's a good color scheme it's yeah, a great color scheme. I, yeah, I, the mix I of the mix of those blues, the grays, the blacks, and the whites, and how crisp everything is. Yeah. That for some reason that really makes me think of Hawkeye by Aha and Fraction. Yeah, something about and it. To go back, to go back a little bit, I just want to mention the first panel when you open the page, and it's just this shot of San Francisco with the Transamerica building and you see an outline the fog, of, dude, the fog. Yeah. And the fog, like that's a really good San Francisco shot, even though again, it's not, you know, you, you see the Transamerica building, but you don't cause it's an outline. So it's, yeah. I think it's a thing where if you're from the city, you, you look at that and you go, yeah, that's, that's the city. Right. But for most people, again, the go-to is the bridge and uh, for most people the easy thing to do is yeah i'm gonna draw the bridge here so you know that's that's the city <laughs> yep yep um, but Wes yeah. craig not only drew uh the silhouette of the transamerica building but he also drew the fog man <laughs> that, yeah that fog yeah. is uh, a pretty defining characteristic exactly it's a pretty good first page or or, or a picture of the city i like it yeah me like too it. man and you're right. The fog does really have a pretty huge added effect to it. It just, it just feels right. Mm-hmm. And what you yeah. were saying earlier about the the flashback scenes, the way that the style that they're drawn and colored, it's not as crisp and as clear as the present day or framing sequence scenes, which makes sense because you're going through his <laughs> memories, and it it totally flows with the internal logic hazy. of the story. Yeah, things are hazy. Yeah. The coloring is very moody. It, again, it's like what we were saying when we talked about uh, volume one last month, where a lot of the pages tend to have one or two dominant colors across the entire page. So like every time there is a color switch, it, it affects the mood, you know? Like it it's pretty subtle. And maybe sometimes you, you actually have to think about it to examine like why did why did lee luridge choose this color or that color for that particular sequence or scene and i'm not a guy who really studied color theory or understands you know the psychological effects of different colors most of the time but just as a reader there's something visually arresting about how you have like this scene in the flashback where marcus He's completely humiliated in front of, is it Ms. Rank, uh, the name of the lady, that harsh yeah, mistress Rank. lady? Yeah, like that, that yeah. whole scene is colored in this, I guess, like a, how would you describe it, like a pinkish orange kind of color? Yeah, it's, I was going to say orange peach. Yeah, orange peach. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because it's not really a color that we normally see. Uh, it's and not, then, it really isn't. Yeah, and then it kind of looks like salmon. <laughs> yeah, it looks like sa- yeah. That's that's exactly it, the salmon pink color scheme. And then when you yeah. uh, get to the end of that scene, there's a page where the color scheme switches, but you get one panel with that lady in it, and that one is still the salmon color scheme. 
And then he goes back, and Marcus goes back into his cell or his room, and then it just turns into this kind of faded, lighter shade of green when he's talking with, I guess, the young version of Chester. Chester. So, yeah. yeah, it's interesting to see the switch of color schemes once you get to these different areas. I guess it kind of indicates like a shift in not only location, but also character and, and mood. So yeah, yeah. as the as the story progresses, like as the flashback progresses, again, you get these other scenes where you'll have a page that has multiple colors that kind of just take over your and capture your eye. Like the scene when the, the action happens, like there's that explosion and then uh, there's a scene inside uh, the cell when Marcus finally grabs a gun and, and his panels are green. And then in the hallway, you hear some gunshots and that's in blue. And then when you actually see people getting shot, those panels are uh, this orange co- color. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's like mm-hmm. an interesting mix and use of color that I, I think is the kind of thing where if you really wanted to take your time and study the yeah. art, like that's the kind of thing that your eye could linger on and it, it would make you think about the color choices behind each of those panels and, and pages. But if you don't yeah. really want to slow yourself down pondering stuff like that, you can still just enjoy the comic fully, just reading through it as fast as you can. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fun to look at it. I I like that you mentioned that one page where when when Marcus is going on his shooting rampage as as he's shooting people you can see the colors just transition to the various color schemes that we've seen throughout this issue and if you look at it at a distance or if you look at the page as a whole it's pretty chaotic and it totally makes sense to use the colors to add to that feeling of chaos that's yeah. actually going on in the scene. And I think it's a pretty clever use of it, uh, you know, because up to this point, they've used the colors to establish in your mind the rules of what the colors are, right? So you know what to expect when you see a certain color scheme. Uh, it's it's unsaid and it's all just unspoken and understood. But the second that everything gets crazy, it messes with your... Mm-hmm. interpretation of it as a reader because now all the color schemes are clashing with each other and they're all in this singular space yeah. so i that's a pretty clever technique on their part yeah it's another thing where i wonder how they decided on that like if that was just colorist decision or if that was in the script or it's just the decision making process behind the, it that i yeah. find fascinating it's the next level i guess uh um it's the next level of thought, a uh, degree of thought that's put into the making of comic that we as the readers don't necessarily always delve into because we're, we're accustomed to reading comics on a pretty surface level, which is pictures, story, period. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah. when that is important, you know, because like when, when I'm read when I was reading it, I was just immersing myself within the story. It's not really until we start talking about it and I'm looking at it again where I start to notice yeah. these things, these patterns and and start examining like what they make me feel or or 
absolutely what they mean it's just when you're absorbed in a story you're just in it for the story and sometimes like yeah all these other thoughts about examining the craftsmanship is kind of secondary because you just want to like find out what happens next yeah it's the sort of thing that we can imbibe in when we're doing a podcast because uh, you know if you listeners know me uh you know that i generally don't think about these things when i'm reading comics because i'm just reading until i get my action or boobs and (laughs) then i move on to my next comic but sitting here talking with you and listening to your your observations it feeds into what i'm processing and how i'm interpreting what i'm reading and all of a sudden you know i can uh add to that as well just as i'm picking things up via osmosis i love feeding the beast man that's what i'm here for you heard that here gutter rights uh gutter trash uh (laughs) gutter gutter filth i'm the beast I'm a beast, beast. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, Wolfman Jack. <laughs> One more thing I liked about the art in this issue: the second to the last page, right when the flashback ends, and it cuts back to Saya reading the diary. It does that thing again where the color scheme switches. The art style switches, understandably so, because you're going from the flashback to the present. But the interesting thing to me yeah. is that the flashback didn't end on the previous page. Because like, I feel like a lot of times in modern comics, usually people like to end their scenes on a page so that you don't have like multiple scenes on the same page. But It's not meant to be distracting. Yeah. Or they think but- it's going to be a distraction. Yeah, and I actually don't think it is usually a distraction because I've read plenty of old comics that do that and, you know, usually is fine. But with this one, I find it pretty interesting to see how as the salmon-colored flashback panels fade out, we cut back to Saya holding the diary and she's drawn in that crisp style again. But not only that, Uh Uh she's breaking the panel borders again. Like, you see where her head is and the panels of the flashback are kind of like behind her head. It kind of gives the impression of, you know, she was immersed in this other story as she's reading it. And now we're coming back to reality. Like she's coming out of that uh, flashback scene into the present. Yeah. I don't know. That's, I don't know if there is anything intentional about Wes Craig drawing her, breaking the panel border there, but I think it, looks pretty good man like it's the kind of subtle thing that i feel like a lesser artist probably wouldn't do yeah yeah like there's no real rhyme or reason to it necessarily there's no i don't think there's any rule that says this is how you do a transition from a flashback but for him just to do that i don't know it's like some intuitive thing where he's just like yeah this is how it should look when we switch back to the present scene like she's coming out of the panel and then you have the flashback scenes behind her head yeah yeah well it, it yeah i wanted to to say about that about this same scene where we talked about how continuing the flashback story on the next following page as they transition into the present tense for them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
it's I it, it what I was gonna say is it is distracting but in a good way because it's the sort of detail that does catch your attention when you stop and think about it and it causes you to ask questions like that and go huh well I wonder why they did that because you're right so many modern comics would prefer to end the story on a pretty hard note on one page and then you start at the next page fresh and just continue from there because it almost feels like they're afraid that it'll mess up the flow or the pace of the story but mm -hmm. it's a pretty it's pretty well crafted and intentionally thought out i i I, th I feel like it's pretty intentional that they put that salmon colored scene right behind her head because mm -hmm. it really does feel like it almost feels like they're thought bubbles yeah. coming out of her yeah. head as yeah. they're watching it so it really like does she's picturing feel like... all this in her mind exactly exactly yeah and that image of saya reading the journal just that one panel right there if you took out the the uh the caption text like that's like an album cover t-shirt oh yeah totally <laughs> yeah it's gorgeous it looks like something that could have been on a i don't know like a devo album cover or something yeah yeah all right you got anything else or are you move, ready to move on to issue nine? I wonder if the reason why they decided to end the scene at the top of a page as opposed to the end of the previous page, I wonder if that's if it's because the story, I wonder if it's because Deadly Class takes place in the 80s. So maybe they're hearkening back to comic book storytelling techniques of the 80s. I don't know. That's kind of too next level for me. I don't like. I'm willing to indulge you in terms of next level thinking about comics, but I, I don't think my brain is capable <laughs> of comprehending that many dimensions. <laughs> I can only go so far on this journey with you. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, uh, okay. Deadly Class issue nine. In Juarez, Mexico, 1979, a family counts drugs in secrecy. When they are beset upon by the region's ruling gang, they plead for their lives, saying that they stole only enough so that they could eat. But it doesn't matter because the point is that they stole. As the public ex execution takes place, the daughter is about to be slain with the rest of her family when a young Chico speaks up for her and she is swept away. This was Maria's story. In the present day, we see Maria participating and excelling in a ex in a class exercise a flippant remark about her betrayal of chico by her fallen com competitor competitor unsettles her and she runs off the statement signifies that rumors are going around and the students aren't as oblivious as maria hopes or thinks during lunch marcus apologize apologizes for not inviting shabnam to the party the night before and acknowledges that it was lame and promises to invite him next time. Saya calls Marcus away, and she shows, shows him a series of news clippings. There's a new killer in town who goes by the name of Fuckface. It's Chester. The two have a mutual understanding, Maria and Marcus. They have to put a stop to this. And, and in order for their plan to work, they need to enlist the aid of an explosives expert. And the best one that they could get a hold of was is Lex, the same Lex that Marcus slagged off at during the party. After some cajoling, they appeal to his ego and get him to sign on. 
Marcus and Saya step out into the night and she invites Marcus to, to a live show. Marcus turns her down initially. After Maria's incident earlier in the day, he needs to check on her. But when he goes to see her, she's clearly been crying. And instead of going to be with her, he ends up at the show with Saya, telling, telling her Maria was asleep. The two discuss music and take drugs and go all out. At the end of the night, as they walk home, they share a kiss. The end of issue nine. Yep, that's a good reason why I don't find Marcus to be an admirable, upstanding hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, again, in a, in a lot of ways, you can look at this scene and maybe this doesn't speak to, maybe this doesn't speak to my view or take on humanity as a whole, but I could see that being a real thing that a real person would do, you know, oh, especially yeah, a teenager. No doubt. no doubt. Yeah. And, and you know, that's not something that excuses it or makes it okay, but it's, it's real. It's believable that people would behave that way. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What'd you think of Maria's origin story at the beginning where we we got a little bit of this in volume one where we learned that they they tell us at the end of volume one when they're fighting Chico that her family was killed and she was swept away, taken away by Chico's family. And you know, the whole time she just resented him, but at the same time, Chico looked at it as I saved you. And he'll even go so far as to say that he loves her. Hmm. It's it's a pretty messy dynamic that they have with each other. Uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, Chico's obviously not the good guy, but clearly everyone who has been in love at some point sees themselves as the hero of their own story. And they're willing to ignore certain details if they can tell themselves that yeah, I, I did it for her. I did it for love. I was willing to do this or that because of it. And so, you know, or she owes as me the poet Fred Durst once said, I did it all for the nookie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, well, I got to take a breather after that. <laughs> <laughs> there's our there's our obligatory Limp Bizkit joke. Uh, stay tuned for to the, the next hour for a, a Todd McFarlane joke. <laughs> but yeah, the that origin story is a pretty grim origin story. And it was something that was hinted at in the previous volume. But now that we get a full presentation <laughs> of the story, yeah, it's it's so brutal, man. Uh, that scene, that's that one page where they... Where Chico's gangsters uh, crucify Maria's dad is that's a pretty messed up scene, man. That's like that's something you see in Fist of the North Star, you know, like just this uh, this act of cruelty where they slaughter a little kid's father in front of her just so they can experience, her, you know, the sadistic pleasure of watching her 
see her dad die and be helpless to do anything about it. The way that page is drawn, too, is pretty fascinating, where the figure of her father, Maria and her father, you know, they're they're basically like, it's like a splash page, but there are still panels, you know? Like, he kind of divides the page in half because there are still these panels. You don't see his eyes when he's hanging, so it kind of dehumanizes him even further. Yeah. So, like, the top part of his body doesn't break through all the panel borders. But uh, when you get lower and you see Maria at his at his knees, uh, she breaks the panel borders. You know, she's at the forefront of the page. And, yeah, I guess it really emphasizes that this is her story. Yeah, it really pops. It makes Maria pop is the thing, because when you look at the top, like, three fifths of it, you're you're right. The the panel, the gutters basically cut him into pieces yeah cut, cut his, his life into pieces cut my this life is his into last pieces this <laughs> is my last resort <laughs> yeah man but, the, the music that people had in the 80s definitely beat the music that we had when we were teenagers <laughs> yeah i i don't even know what what was that like the thousands we might not have been well i i don't know oh i think that was late 90s man anyways (laughs) (laughs) okay copper roach that's pretty bad yeah they suck (laughs) yeah but when you look at that that bottom three-fifths of the page uh you know she's she's pretty front and center just grabbing onto his legs and the fact that they exist outside the borders on t- on top of the border uh, on top of the go- gutters it it just makes it it emphasizes her plight and just how bad this situation is for her because yeah. again they they could have very easily put the gutters so that it cut her off into sections as well but because of the positioning of it all it it, it kind of makes her the focal point of the page yeah it really does that's again just really interesting mm-hmm. storytelling techniques simply through the art you just get so much in in this one page so i it's another thing where i wonder like what did the actual script for this page look like yeah. how did remender describe it to the artist was craig when he was doing it it's uh the magic of collaboration man it's a beautiful thing yeah yeah were there any other scenes in this issue that popped out at you? So I guess the following scene where I forget the name of the kid that she's fighting. They they have uh, an exercise where her and this other student are hunting each other and she comes out and she blows smoke in his or some sort of powder in his face and, you know, beats him in a fight. And you know she 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 did a good job and she was congratulated and commended for her efforts and then this one kid victor he he says he doesn't even say a whole thing because what what happens is the teacher is talking about maria and he's saying oh she's really good at misdirection you know she's she's shown a skill and a talent for it and that's those are the kind of skills you're going to need if you're going to become the world's deadliest assassins right and mm-hmm. you know after this entire bit about how good she at, at how good she is at misdirection all he has to say is yeah just ask chico 
and that's enough to just really mess her up. And yeah, I, I thought that was a pretty telling scene because even though the five of them, I think it was the five of them, went off to, to Vegas and they ended up killing Chico in that one fight. Mm-hmm. It's it's obvious that word is getting around the school somehow, some way. So we, you know, we don't know who's saying what, but there's enough gossip going around that, you know, it's high school. Uh, reputation is, there's more of a premium on reputation than there should be, but it's enough to really affect people. And, and we're seeing that affect her, especially her in a more severe way, because it's not just a matter of, oh, did you look at her shoes? Or did you look at, did you hear that she went out with this person? Or did you hear, you know, this or that? Because you're mixing in the element of the fact that she actually killed this person that she was just so closely tied to for such a long time that it only makes sense that she would have all these complex emotions about it. Because, you know, we saw in the flashback, say what you will, his family might have been responsible for the death of her family, but he was technically responsible for saving her as well, which is, I mean, there's definitely a black and white way to look at it, but I also understand how mixed up that can make a person. Yeah. It's all sorts of mixed up and messed up because he technically, like you said, saved her life, but in doing so he felt entitled to own her. Yeah. Yeah, it's a turducken of just messed up behaviors. <laughs> yeah, because because he's responsible for the death of her family, but he's also responsible for saving her. But because he's respo- he thinks he's responsible for saving her. He thinks she owes him. <laughs> like just yeah, how many layers is that of just messed up? <sighs> oh, that is indeed a turducken. Um, I'm curious. So with what we've learned about Shabnam in the previous scene and how it turns out he's been stealing Marcus's diary and giving it to Master Lin. And it's also kind of obvious that he's he's got some sort of resentment towards Marcus. What, what did you think of that scene where they're in the cafeteria, they're with each other, and Marcus is just like, yeah, that was lame, man. I, you know, I got caught up in the moment and I regret what I did. And next time we go out, I'm 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 gonna invite you. What'd you think of that? Man, to me that just sounded like a teenage kid saying what he thought he was supposed to say without any real conviction. Cause oh, there's a part of me that is pretty skeptical that Marcus really cares that much about Shabnan. So I'd have to see I'd have to see a little bit more between the two before I can actually believe that Marcus is genuinely penitent about what he did earlier. Yeah. Huh. I mean, it, it's like he's the okay. kind of person, it seems like he, he knows what the right thing to say and do is, but do I actually believe... Whether he actually follows through on it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but... I've had some really bad bosses at work before where they they say the things that good bosses are supposed to say when they're in a good mood. <laughs> but then when push comes to shove, they still do the things that make everybody hate them. 
So <laughs> to me, it's kind of like Marcus has to prove himself before I can have any faith in what he says. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate your perspective on it. It's definitely something that makes me reconsider what I was looking at. What were your I thoughts on that scene? I was of the mind. I, I took it at face value. I think he, or maybe I wanted to believe he genuinely felt bad and he was going to try to make up for it moving forward. But now, the more I think about it, the more you, the more likely it is that he's just going to do what a teenager does, yeah. which is, you know, when push comes to shove, it's hard for me to imagine that he would necessarily take take the courageous stance in front of all his peers because you know his unformed hormone addled brain is gonna just be really concerned with his own self-preservation yeah maybe his, there his... is a part of him that is genuinely sorry or he, he does feel some level of sorrow over what he did I guess it just feels like based on what we've seen of his character so far, I I've kind of take everything he says, especially when he's being kind, I kind of take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. It really, now that you're mentioning it, really, it really does make me look at everything he's done in this volume, especially it, it makes me take a second look at everything he's done because, you know, right after, yeah, w let's go back to the previous issue where he, he he makes this big scene of talking crap about Lex, but it's something that he does in front of everybody. He makes a big show of it just to, you know, just to r remind people or let people know that he's a good guy because he's not he's not looking down his nose at you because of your taste in music or anything. He's a good guy because he's calling that guy out. See? Exactly. See exactly. Does you see him? Does you see him, Drew? <laughs> And then shortly after after this scene with Shabnam where okay let's let's say you look at it and you're like okay maybe there's some shred of decency in this guy and later on he goes out with Saya and they step out and she's she's going to this party or she's going to this live live music show and she asks him to come and he knows he's in a relationship with Maria the world knows he's he's, he's in a relation well not the world but you know the people at school. The people in their friend group knows. Uh, I think they they're trying to keep it secret at this point because. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, with, you're right. With everything that happened to Chico, with everything right. that happened to Chico, they're trying to keep it down low. But yeah. within the friend group, you know, the, they know that he's with Maria. So in that moment, he goes, "Yeah, she that that thing happened with her today. She she's had a rough day. I should go see her." You know, which again is the type of thing that you know you should say and do because it sounds like the right thing that you should say and do. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we get to that page and it's really slow and really deliberate, but you see him kind of sheepishly, sheepishly walking up, up, up the, the path a little bit. And then he goes up to her window and it's done like four panels. And then you f see him when he's, literally at the window and you see her crying and she's just drinking whiskey and he he stands there and he hovers at the window and then you see a close-up of his face as he's looking at her like he knows she's in a bad place he knows what he's supposed to do and then you turn the page and he's like right at the live music show yeah and <laughs> the fact that he'd lie about it by just saying oh she was asleep it's 
it's telling of his character. Yeah, it, yeah, it is, and it doesn't. It definitely doesn't put him in a good light. Yeah. Yeah. Punk kids, <laughs> stupid teenagers. <laughs> really stupid teenagers, man. It's like he he <laughs> went to go see her, and I'm sure that if she wanted to have sex with him, he would have stayed with her. But if she's having some kind of emotional issue, uh, he's out, man. He's just, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm not getting anything from this, and if it's of all that's required me of me is to give of my time to like comfort this other person, nuts to that. <laughs> Yeah, let's go watch the adolescence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will also say that the the following scene when they're partying and they're, you know, at the music show, I do like how that was colored. Uh, yeah. It just super pops because, you know, uh, when you're at a live show, uh, it, it makes sense that everything is for the mo- most part going to be really dark. So they use this kind of cool turquoise blue to to show the dark, and then because you know because it's a live show, there's definitely going to be some sort of production there. So you get all these flashes of hot pink and purple that really just pop against that blue. It's it's a cool cool look. Uh, and then when you get to the following page, when they're talking about I don't know what their specific term for it was, but it's basically like a mosh pit, I think. And you just see all the people just, you know, this writhing mass of people just jamming with one another. It, it's, it's mesmerizing to look at. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, a good punk-oriented color scheme that really, yeah, draws you into the energy and the excitement of the moment. Yeah. And I also wanted to draw some more attention to like the next page. There's this one scene like uh, at one point Saya is talking to to Marcus and they're talking about what it's like being in 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 this pit in this writhing mass, right? Is that and slam dancing? I think that's it, what it's is it, I'm not I don't actually okay, know okay. cuz I'm not a punk. Uh, I was never into the punk scene and even if right, I same here. were into it, I don't think I would uh want to participate in that because I you'd like, be when I go to rock shows, I you'd be a very stay, polite punk. I stay away from the mosh pit, dude. I'm the kind of guy who goes to a live show and I stand in the back as far away from other people as I can, and I just nod my head to the beat, you know. <laughs> like I I definitely don't go wild. I don't throw myself into other people. I yeah uh, I, I don't uh. I shun uh physical contact. You'd be a very polite punk. I imagine that you'd you'd stand there with a saucer of tea and you'd get you'd say, "Pardon me, excuse yeah. me." Totally, man. <laughs> That's exactly how I would do it. <laughs> yeah, Pardon but I was gonna more, say the, the, but have you the any line. Great coupon. Tut tut, cheerio, pop pop pop. But uh, there's the scene where Sai is talking about what it's like to be a part of this group. And I do think it's another scene that, or, or another bit of dialogue that reminds me of how, as, as teenagers, she's saying something that is kind of liberating and free, and there's a certain truth to it, but there's also a certain pretentiousness to it, too. 
<laughs> where she goes, it's a pure expression of their enthusiasm and joy for the music. It looks violent, but it isn't. It's play fighting, if you look close. It's a dance of camaraderie and exuberance. It's the dance of the weirdos and the freaks un uncorking all of their frustration. There's a poetry and there's a beauty to it, but there, there's also, I can't help but read that and feel like there's a intentional pretentious streak that he's applying, that Remender is applying to it to just remind you, these are just dumb kids, you know? <laughs> uh, and again, I can't say for sure that that's what he was trying to do, but it's it's just it could the go way that I way. read it, I, I can't help. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's definitely a sincere interpretation of what she's saying, but there's also a tone that you can take with it where you're just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah. And then the next page, on the next page, what I love is there's a scene of Marcus in, in the crowd just rocking out and dancing uh, with all these people, right? Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of Max from Where the Wild Things Are. <laughs> you know? The scene from where the wild things are, where they talk about how, you know, they gnash their teeth and they like howl their howls and, you know, they do the, the wild, wild, the dance of the wild beast or whatever they call it. Mm -hmm. Like his, the way that his body is positioned just totally looks like Max wilding out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good point. And, and on top of that, in the panel following it, you see the two of them walking away from the Fillmore and that does look like the Fillmore. Yeah. Like that looks right to me. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. That one so, was one where it's a good touch. Probably uh, use the photo for that for some reference. Yeah. Have you ever been to the Fillmore? Yeah, but not in a long time. I haven't I haven't been to a concert since before the pandemic. I haven't been to. I I rarely go to concerts. Um, I don't think I have the attention span for it, quite honestly. But, you know, uh, but I've never been to the Fillmore for music or comedy or anything like that. But it's one of those places where, you know, when you are a resident of a place you you kind of take the local fare for granted just because you live there and you tell yourself i can go there whenever yeah for whatever reason or purpose so yeah I, I think in the back of my mind there's always a part of me that wants to check it out but I'm i'm always just delaying it for a time when i feel like it or a time when it's more convenient for me too <laughs> yeah yeah, I could see that. I feel like I've probably only been yeah. to like one show there. Like most of the other concerts I've been to, I've been at, at other venues. When I looked it up, it did look like the real Fillmore, you know? <coughs> Whoa. Yeah. I mean, even from was that the Pepper? Hello. Was that Pepper? Oh, no, that was me. <laughs> oh, that was intense. No, I thought... Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I thought, man, I, I, gotta my, uh, I gotta time my pauses. <laughs> I get to time my uh my mutes because I'm always muting and I think that it's set and then I'll cough and then I'll try to unmute it real quick but I gotta give more of a delay. <laughs> yeah, I I thought Pepper just growled at somebody. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. I I did also want to call attention to the very last page of it when you watch them kiss, mm -hmm. and it's it's done over four panels and they're not your traditional panels you know I, with this book so far they've been pretty clever with the layouts their 
yeah their layouts exactly but i do like how this layout is is presented to us the world's and, just uh, gone tilted just overall how it looks yeah exactly exactly and there's a swooniness to it <laughs> if that's a word did you say swooniness yeah you know like having the quality or effect of a swoon oh okay okay <laughs> yeah i can't say I've i don't know if that's that a word before. in fact i highly doubt it's a word but i i trust you and i trust our listeners to be able to make sense of what i say because uh you guys are smart you guys are smart people we can understand albert yeah there we go <laughs> <laughs> did you notice anything else that caught your attention about this issue or anything you wanted to comment on Actually, one thing I I just realized, though, as we were talking and I was looking at some of the art again, when we were discussing one of the previous issues and I was talking about how crisp the style of drawing was when we saw Sai on that rooftop, I just re- realized that the album I was thinking of wasn't a Devo album cover, but it was actually Duran Duran. Like there's a cl- Sometimes uh, I feel like Les Craig channels that kind of clean style of drawing his figures where they look like that album cover. Um, do you... You know which one I'm talking about? I don't remember what album it is, but it's it's Duran Duran, where it's like this really clean drawing of a of a woman smiling. And there's just something about that image that comes into mind during certain scenes when Les Craig draws in that really clean style where Saya's skin is just so pure and white and there are like a minimal amount of lines and it's just super crisp. But anyway, yeah, that's that's all I was thinking about. Um, yeah, I I I don't know what you're talking about because I don't really listen to too much Duran Duran. So, but I will say that the color scheme does remind me of a bunch of those '80s posters. Um, I forget what they're called. You kind of saw them all the time in uh. In, in barber shops in the 80s <laughs> where where they have that that aesthetic of uh you know neon colors weird geometric shapes and then there was always like this really pale figure uh at the at the center of it and yeah i wish i could find the name of that poster or that style but i i don't have a name for it we'll do a google image search after this yeah yeah i mean we did see, I feel like we saw a bunch of those posters growing up. They were just kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah. You uh, ready to move on then? Ready and willing. All right. Deadly Class, issue 10. Marcus wakes up in the park naked with Saya, and he freaks out at the realization of what he's done. And to add to that, he's severely late to work at the comic shop on one of the biggest sales days of the year. That's a huge no-no. Don't do that. Never do that. That's, <laughs> know, that's that would, how that we... Would, that would piss me off. On, yeah. Based on that one action alone, I can honestly say that I judge him and deem him a terrible person. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he immediately bolts for the store and arrives to a crowd of glares and complaints. As the day, as the day draws on, Marcus's hangover just gets worse and worse culminating in self-inflicted explosive diarrhea. (laughs) With his clothes completely soiled 
and nothing to clean up with. He uses his boss's shirt as just as his boss walks in to see it. He is fired on the spot. Saya, Maria, Willie, Billy, and Lex arrive just in time to witness all this. The group head off to the Tenderloin. Tonight's the night. They set their explosives they set the explosives off and enter the building only to find themselves in the middle of an ambush. Marcus and Lex get pinned down while Saya fights for her life. As Saya struggles, she wonders where her backup, Maria, is until she realizes that Maria is already in the room watching all this and she sees Maria's face as she asks, you fucked him, didn't you? Yeah, this was a pretty intense issue because of the comic book scene, man. Like, that's something where if there's a sale, dude, and the guy who's running the sale is two hours late, that's time that we lose to get cheap comics, man. Unacceptable. Yeah. That's how we knew that Marcus is the villain of the story. Exactly. He's a villain most foul. Most foul and treacherous. <laughs> he might have cheated on his girlfriend, but the real crime is that he was late to his comic book sale. <laughs> to a comic book sale. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I will say I'm looking at the scenes where he's running to the comic book shop, and it's pretty intense. His eyes are bugging out. His teeth are just, you know, all white and white. And he's running through what looks to be the hate, I want to say. It, I mean, there's a store there called Groovy Times. It, and like just as he's running, he's like puking all over himself. He's he's a hot mess, this kid, man. It doesn't feel like the hate has hills like that, though. That's true. You're he's right. Running up a hill. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I, don't I have no idea where this is just, supposed to be. I just saw the uh, the psychedelic hippie font on that store and it just made me think of the hate because i can't really think of any other places yeah that would have that true true yeah yeah and he is just his body is just not reacting well to any of the things and you know when you read this particular section and what's going through his mind he's 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 in a panic about the life and death situation that he's going to be in. He's he's thinking about work. He's thinking about Saya, and he's thinking about what he just did. He, I would not want to live in this kid's head. Oh no <laughs> in way! That particular moment. Yeah. Terrible man. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he follows that up by yeah, trapping himself. One of the, comic book stores yeah one of the 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 comic book stores customers he's been bugging him the whole time because he's trying to uh he's telling him you promised me that you'd draw me a picture of this or that i forget exactly what and then you know he thinks he's being cheeky and he decides i'm gonna i'm gonna fart in front of this kid so that the kid's gonna run off you know that'll be my one outlet and 
he completely sharts himself right on the spot, <laughs> completely misjudged what was going to happen. <laughs> and then once he opened the floodgates on that, there was just no containing it because it's not like you can just half shart. It's either a full shart or nothing. <laughs> you know? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, totally gross. And you man. just watching him run off the run off in the chaos and he's just like the whole world just watching me do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's pretty embarrassing but also hilarious as well the way that he uh yeah. tries to clean himself is disgusting but it, there's just something gross. comical about it and there's something amusing about how this volume we have a couple of scenes that are just chock full of this sort of gross out humor because i don't think we really talked about it but in the the first issue or in uh issue seven the first issue of this volume there was that scene when chester was talking to one of his lackeys and he thought his lackey was being annoying so he he was uh on the toilet when his lackey talked to him and then he just grabbed the dude and shoved his face into the toilet before he flushed it you know just making this dude yeah eat, eat piss and and uh excrement and it's just yeah nasty but there's also something like over the top funny about it too you know there's a lot of potty humor yeah, in yeah. this volume for some reason. <laughs> this is the Mona Lisa of potty humor. Yeah. This comic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's creative though. I don't think I've read a comic where the main character literally crapped himself to this degree and then tried to wipe himself off and we get to see every yeah. ugly bit of it. It's it's really detailed. And the the scene that jumps out or the panel that jumps out at me is him trying to put all his clothes yeah. into the sink and yeah. just pouring water on it. Like, and it's just this pathetic attempt to try to fix the problem. But, you know, once you're there, it's bad. And then when you look a little further down at the scene when he's trying to floss with his boss's t-shirt, yeah. <laughs> and by floss, I mean he's going to take the t-shirt and put it in between his legs so that he can, you know, floss his move anus. it back and forth and floss his anus. Like, if you look at the sink in that picture, it's just got green stuff pouring over the edge. <laughs> and, you know, that's not the natural color of crap, but it still communicates the the idea. You get it when you're looking yeah. at that. You're just like, this is inhumanly gross. Yeah, man. Yeah. Albert, and, have you ever crapped yourself? Yeah, everybody's crapped themselves at one point or another. It's a, it's a common human occurrence. You got any stories that you want to share on a podcast? Not especially. <laughs> I mean, I think it's enough to know that it happened. <laughs> How old right? were you? It's a. You talking about when you were a baby? Because that doesn't count. <laughs> why doesn't that count? <laughs> Where? Why are we putting conditions on this? <laughs> Look, let me put it this way: If you've made it to wherever you are in life without crapping yourself, uh, like at least once, I commend you. Like you. You have lived a pretty, you have protected and guarded yourself pretty well and maintained control of your faculties and your condition all the way throughout. And that's a, that's a level of willpower that makes you a Green Lantern in my book. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. And then the scene where his boss shows up because... Of course, when that happens, of course your boss is gonna show up. What did you, you know? Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just the universe acting 
acting in accordance to 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 perfectly give you the worst of all worlds at any given time and he's fired on the spot just as his friends show up and they're just watching all this it's yeah yeah it's pretty humiliating it's a sad state of affairs yeah 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 i have a pretty funny uh, you know my pants story but i'll tell you tomorrow when i see you at lunch (laughs) I don't want you don't it on want to the put podcast. it in the podcast. Okay. Not, not yet. Maybe, maybe we'll save that one for the Patreon. <laughs> exactly. So if you you pay extra money, you will hear about the time that we crapped ourselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> yeah. Right. I will say this about this issue. The the one thing that I like is, and maybe this is something that I enjoy as I get older. But the one thing I like about this, about how the entire love triangle thing plays out is Maria, towards the end of the issue, she just figures it out, right? And I think I've become accustomed to reading a lot of stories where they really tease that out or they really play it out. And they try to get really cute or clever with how it's all revealed that someone cheated on another person, but like Dawson's Creek or something, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, even in comics, we see this sort of thing where they, they, they really want to tease out the drama. So they really prolong it and stretch it out and, you know, make it about the character trying to hide it until he just, bends over backwards so much that he can no longer hide the fact that he did this wrong thing. And then he's caught because of, or the person is caught because of, you know, their hubris or uh, uh, a trick of fate or something like that. But Mm -hmm. to forego all that and just to have her know, and I, I can see the argument that people would make that, well, how did you know? Why did you know? And maybe it doesn't matter, right? I, I don't know if you feel that way. If like, if you need to have some sort of explanation for why she knows. Well, in Sometimes, this instance, I feel like there's a good reason why Maria knows because of the stuff that happened in the previous issues where she saw the two of them on the rooftop looking at his diary. So already yeah. right there, you know, she... Number one, they're together yeah. alone on a rooftop, and then, uh, yeah, looking at the diary, I'm, I don't, I'd have to go back and look at that page to see if she realized that's what they were looking at. But it's still yeah. this kind of moment of intimacy, emotional intimacy between the two of them. And then, yeah, that other scene, and yeah. at the end of issue seven, when she's spying on them from the tree and shoots the arrow at them when when they're alone, you know, I, I feel like that's enough for her to have the idea that well but Marcus is cheating right right but that's the thing like it's 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 a situation where the intuition is the thing that reveals it right it it doesn't yeah. go she, she didn't literally walk the, in on them in bed or something yeah exactly it it it's not this overly it's it's not this situation that's overly orchestrated by the writer to be you know too cute or too clever for its own good where oh i need to make this really elaborate so when when she does find out the payoff is just 
you know, is just money or whatever. Like sometimes it really is just a matter of something doesn't feel right and just calling a person out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I feel like in a lot of comics that we've seen, there's, as I said before, there's a lot of this teasing out to make it this really elaborate uh moment that's built up over a course of you know x amount of issues until you get to the point where oh i caught you in the act or you know someone accidentally leaked a video or you know someone said the wrong thing to the wrong person and that's that's the indicator or like why are you wearing his socks or shoes or (laughs) you know whatever it may be (laughs) right like uh it's it it was as simple as something didn't feel right and i'm just gonna say it and and that's mm-hmm. where it is so i like i do appreciate occasionally uh, uh stories that just forego all that and just get straight to the point um yeah yeah i was i was gonna say it, it i've been watching ozarks recently and that's a show that does that sort of track uh it, or that's a storytelling choice on their part but the thing about it is they do it for everything so it, it is getting a little tiresome where you know whenever they try to build up to something they always cut it really short and they choose not to give you the build up and just kind of feed you the direct consequences right then and there hmm. I see. But, yeah but you know, I, I think in a perfect world, you get a, a decent mix of both of those kinds of storytelling techniques. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It it wouldn't be right to say that one is absolutely better than the other. It's just all about the execution and the yeah. context. Absolutely, absolutely. It's an observation that tickles my fancy. Mm-hmm. Shall we cover the next issue? Yeah, let's go for it. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> I'm trying to you clear my throat, but without like just. I, well, yeah, because I was already in the middle of speaking, so I thought I'd just <laughs> give a dainty cough instead of blowing out your eardrums with my regular hacking and <laughs> hacking. Oh, no. That was pretty unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Deadly class issue eleven. <laughs> the battle rages on when Billy and Willie attempt to make an entrance. The back door is reinforced, so they won't be making it in that way. Saya gets free and kills her attacker, at which point Maria and her get into it. As the two fight, Maria talks about who, how, how much she loves Marcus, but Saya brings it back down to earth, telling her that that behavior has to end and that people don't fall in love. The fight is then interrupted by two more attackers. As Maria fights, she has an epiphany. She has been manipulating Marcus, and she has had rose-colored lenses about their relationship as well as her relationship with Saya. Their world is a harsh one, and these kinds of indulgences are not only beneath her, but they're a risk. She gains mastery of her, over her faculties and finds the will to fight. Marcus escapes into the basement to find headmistress ranks being held captive in a cage. It's safe to assume unspeakable things have happened to her. Within seconds of realizing it's Marcus, she screams out for him to be killed. Chester fires and kills her accidentally, ending her miserable life. 
as Maria is choked on, as Maria is choked out by her second attacker, Saya and Billy save her. Chester and Marcus continue to hunt for one another in the dark when Marcus unleashes all the abused dogs Chester has kept caged up. They immediately attack and kill him. That is the end of Chester. On his way out, Marcus finds Chico's severed head. It's the evidence that they need that they need and and they take it with him as they escape. He and Maria run into each other on the way out. They exchange words about the, the mistakes they made and about their hurt feelings. Marcus tries to apologize, but Maria just doesn't want to hear it. They step out of the building only to come face to face with Chico's family, holding Willie, holding Willie captive. They have some explaining to do. That is the end of volume issue eleven and uh, volume two. Yeah, it's a there, ending. Definitely something that makes you want to find out is, what happens next. It's a huge cliffhanger. Yeah, it really is. Especially considering the the previous issues where we see just how sadistic Chico's family can be, and this whole time they're just trying to grab his head as the final bit of evidence. Because you know, if they destroy it, they they have pure uh, what's the word deniability, and and that's the last thing that links them to to his death. And what happens? They they step right in it just as they're coming out of the <laughs> yep. the house. And it's it's another example of that thing we were just talking about in the in the last issue where you know instead of building it up or or finding ways to to tease it out any further it just so happens that chico's family is right there and it's just the right amount of build up just for the right amount of payoff in that final moment mhm mhm that's right yeah yeah i do think there was some stuff about maria and saya's fight there where you know, when you look at it from a distance, it feels like it's a lover's quarrel. It's this love triangle between these two people. But Saya's response to that is, I don't know, I felt like it was a very real response considering the kinds of lives that they lead. The part where Almost she says people that, don't fall in love. It, it's... Yeah, it's people don't fall in love and it's time to grow grow up and you're getting soft and it's this realization that this isn't this isn't a, a conventional high school where you can where we can have these kind of fights and get all giddy about it and you know uh really kind of blow up the blow up the trivialities of our of our high school existence and make it seem like it's the biggest thing in the world because for us, the biggest thing in the world is actually our life and death survival, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. To, to, to let it affect your judgment to the point where you, where she was almost willing to, not almost, she was willing to let this other hick girl almost kill her because she was just jealous and mad about a boy, a high school boy, no less. You know, um, like yeah, is that at one point? So it's it's just this moment of 
again bringing Maria back down to earth just to remind her that we 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 exist in a world where our sole purpose is eventually going to be killing people and if you let that kind of mentality get in your way it will not end well for you yeah it's there's something yeah. fascinating about the idea of two friends fighting and having that conversation because then it's it does that thing where the conflict is the conflict yeah. is made yeah. literal where you know usually without the physical confrontation it would just be a war of words and emotions or, you know, just something more abstract. But you layer the fight on top of that, then it becomes physical. It, it becomes real in a tangible Manifest. way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The action is really it, well done, though. I, I think the artwork during these fight scenes is excellent. Like, just as, as good as... We've said Wes Craig has been throughout all these other scenes that are more, uh, I don't know, either con contemplative or just, uh, you know, scenes of people talking. When he, when it comes to these set piece action sequences, he does a superb job handling the frenetic nature of everything that's going on, the chaos, the violence. Yeah. There's even some, like pretty creative ways of killing people here like that i'm thinking specifically of that scene when maria is fighting the big lady with a pitchfork in the bathroom yeah yeah and yeah she's she's able to wrest control of the pitchfork and the she tip. shoves it into that woman's face and then like the way that the prongs pierce that woman's head <laughs> man there's yeah. something grotesque <laughs> about it but I admit, it made me laugh when I read it. <laughs> yeah, because one one of the prongs goes straight through her mouth while the other one goes through her cheek, and like it actually catches the eyeball on the tip of it on the way out. <laughs> yeah, it's intense. Uh, yeah, it's super intense. Uh, that's some um, heavy violence. And then the the scene or the moment right after it, when she pulls the bladed part out and just starts stabbing her repeatedly with it over and over Whew, yeah man yeah there there's something that about it that reminds me of a grindhouse movie or a, a b movie or something you know like the kind of violence that you would see in something like hobo with a shotgun yeah yeah it's over the top it's pretty over the top mm -hmm. i will say that the interesting thing about this issue is you know even though we've been following marcus over the course of this and Marcus does play a role in it. Like the, the big emotional beat really is about Maria and Saya in, in this particular issue. Yeah. Um, like with, with, with Chester and Marcus, it's, you know, there are definitely emotions involved, but when we're reading, but it's really action oriented on their end. And when we're reading the 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 captions uh involved with the scenes the the real emotional depth is on maria's and she's she's a pretty big focal point of this issue so i'm looking at the scene where she's fighting the big lady and you know she it's in this moment where she has her epiphany and she says saya's right you need someone to hate to fuel the machine manipulate manipulation that bullshit about killing chico for him 
You'd have killed Chico anyway, but you used it to guilt trip Marcus into staying. The boy you think will finally be decent and the friend you think you can finally count on. No more hoping, no more self-pity. You don't need any of them. And these were all scenes that were, uh, this, this writing was overlaid on the scene that you just described where she was killing the, mm-hmm. the big, the big lady. Right. So again, it's a, it's, it's a stark contrast to like this really heavy violence happening, but her having this moment of realization that this is all kind of high school antics and these are the the stakes that she's dealing with and by the time you get to the end of the book or or the end of the issue she's uh she's pretty deflated like it's it it feels like she's accepted this as a reality but at the same time that doesn't make it sting any less yeah you know when she's talking with marcus and they're they're walking out together and they're both just they're both crying and it's another example of that grant morrison thing we talked about where you know in a regular story people break up but in a story with assassins they break up in a way that assassins break up yeah and the scale that assassins break up with right uh the thing with grant morrison was superman is like us but when he does things he does it on a scale that superman does things so it's it's a similar it's a similar technique that's used in both these cases and you see them playing this all out in this over the top grindhouse action but the emotional beats that are still being worked out is is you watching these two in spite of all the action that you've just witnessed what you're really watching is them break up in front of you yeah uh oh yeah you're watching them break up in front of you as all this is happening that's that's the emotional earthquake that's happening on top of the the spectacle and the huge violence that's going on yeah on some level do you think that makes the drama do you think it turns the drama into melodrama like what we were saying earlier about Claremont comics. Uh, Where's that fine line? Did you explain what you mean by that? Like, like I, I like, like, I think where, where's the fine I'm line hearing the words that you're saying, and I think I'm understanding it, but go ahead. Like, where's the fine line between treading into melodrama, like cheap melodrama or huh. staying on the side where like you said, you, you're elevating the stakes and having these characters operate on a scale that makes sense for them as assassins. So it's you know bigger. The things that they go through are things that normal people go through, but the way that they go through it is just bigger because they live, they operate in this world where heads get chopped off and people's faces get stabbed through with pitchforks and and stuff like that. So like, how how do you? Huh decide yeah, yeah, when yeah. something is melodrama and when something is just you know on a bigger scale it's interesting that you mentioned that because when you look at the action the action is so over the top especially like that scene where you know she's using the pitchfork to kill this lady right 
that's you're right that is there is something grindhouse about that where the action and the violence is the point of it but i feel like if it was a more subdued fight scene and a more subdued action scene then maybe the emotional epiphany that she has wouldn't be quite as it wouldn't feel quite as melodramatic but then it also makes me think of something like a history of violence where that's a movie where the drama is inherent throughout and the tension is inherent throughout and it's not until the very end of the movie where there's just a pretty intense act of violence that you just kind of view in contrast to the emotional story that's going on you know Mm -hmm. so uh that's a tough question for me to answer i i do think i don't know if it is melodrama in this in this case because yeah i don't yeah that's tough that's tough i I I feel like going back and forth on it. Like part of me wants to say that it, it doesn't feel like melodrama because these are the stakes that they live in. Like if I am taking this story at face value and these are this is really a story about assassins living in a deadly world, then it really brings down the it, it, the epiphany that Maria has really gets brought down to earth because when you view what she's thinking in contrast to what we're seeing it's the realization that how do you expect to have any kind of a normal teenage life if this is the kind of thing that you deal with on a regular basis right mm-hmm. yeah i don't know that's tough did you yeah, have I any feel thoughts like, on that i think i think the first thing that comes to my mind is the way that the prose is written because i think with Claremont comics, he tends to use a lot of purple prose <laughs> and overwrite a lot of stuff. So That's a good because point. of that, it, it makes it's like he's trying to make everything portentous and everything yeah. just like points to something bigger when being more straightforward and matter of fact, like the way that Remender writes her writes Maria's internal narration during the fight scene here. It's brief. Yeah, it, it's pretty brief. But it's it conveys all the information that we need to know, and it's yeah. There's yeah. something more honest about it, I guess, because it it doesn't feel like it's trying to be more profound than it actually is. It's just the proper yeah. level of profundity, and it it's I like you know that. understated. Like it's yeah. It's not really. It doesn't really feel like Remender's trying to beat us over the head with showing us that. She's come to this massive realization. It just feels like this isn't a Shakespearean tragedy for him. Exactly. Exactly. It is. It is its own tragedy without having to exist on that level of a a Shakespearean or a Greek tragedy. <laughs> yeah. Where she's, you know, proclaiming to the heavens and to the gods, "Why have thou forsaken me, <laughs> oh?" <laughs> Oh, where is some fates who aren't in heaven who watch over me, who vex me so? <laughs> right, that it ain't like that at all. Version of this. <laughs> I do also want to say that I think this entire 
issue does a really good well i'll say this whole volume continues to do a really good job of what we talked about in terms of one of remender's pet themes that we see in a lot of his work which is the consequences and ramifications of violence because like so much of the story in deadly class is about the history that these characters have the violent histories that these characters have and how that affects how they live how they think how they approach and solve their problems all the emotional things that they deal with like there's so much of it that is just colored by violence you know from the from the very basic plot of the story you know it it works with so many of the different characters where with Marcus we have the the violence that he had to endure when he was growing up in that group home situation with Maria we we had her origin presented to us with the murder of her family uh and then of course the violence that happened at the end of volume 1 when she killed Chico that's the thing that sets this whole sequence in issue 11 into play you know like they're still they're just constantly dealing with the levels of violence in their lives so like they have all this violence and trauma from their past growing up and then they did something you know several months ago and killed a classmate they can't really escape it no matter what like the same way that they cannot escape the trauma from their past they can't escape this murder like you said they were so close to you know finally getting rid of the last piece of evidence that would tie them to chico's murder but just when they walk out the house he's holding chico's head casually and then who's out there except for chico's father you know ready to uh avenge his son i guess and continue this cycle of violence it's like everything that happens in this story is because of some kind of violence that happened in the past they really can't escape it and it just shows you even how they react or resolve their problems their their relational problems with violence like the thing that's going on with saya and maria again Maria's relationship with Marcus was all based on one act of violence and then her whole mentality is screwed up her her she's depressed and has these mood swings because of what she did because of the murder and then you you know yeah. you got the whole sequence with uh Saya and Marcus cheating because he just doesn't care about other people then you then you have the scene earlier in this issue where Saya and and Maria get into a fight over Marcus basically but there's also like something deeper underneath it too you know like they're not just fighting over a boy but it it does feel like there's some kind of philosophy underpinning that dialogue when they're fighting you know like she's like Saya is yeah. calling out yeah. Maria for being soft and weak and that that's something that you can't have in a society of assassins so yeah you know assassins aren't supposed well, to love so you, you, you people don't fall in love you shouldn't fall in love so it's like it, again and it kind of makes you question like if that's the case what was she doing with Marcus why is she spending all this time with Marcus herself you know like does she have some kind of feeling right. for him or is it is it just purely physical so there there's like all these different well, elements that kind of become raised as you 
go through the story. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting uh, that you mention um, Marcus and and Saya, it, and you know it it feels like up to this point that she has some sort of in, uh, she obviously has some sort of interest in him, but I think most people reading it presume that it's a romantic interest. But when she has this talk with Maria, it almost feels like she she slept with with Marcus to to bring her back down to earth. Like the point of it was to snap her back into the proper mindset, not so much, you know, maybe like her attraction to Marcus might have been secondary to to the main point, which was, hey, you needed someone to do this to you so that you could get your head back in the game. I don't know if you read it that way, but it, it did it did feel like there was some extra layer to her thought process outside of just sleeping with him for the sake of sleeping with him, you know? Mm. Yeah, I didn't and, think of that at the in the moment, but now that you mention it, that adds a layer to their to their fight. Yeah. 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 And the other thing that I do th- that I uh, have pondered while while listening to you was, or uh, one thing that I noticed while I was while you were talking was this idea of we mentioned how Chico feels entitled to Maria because he saves her, but the funny thing is Maria's kind of in that position now too, because she tells herself that she killed Chico for Marcus. And as a result, yeah, it's it's a it's it's entitlement all over again, right? So she she uses it to guilt him into being with her because mm-hmm. essentially the way she views it is that he owes her for what she was willing to give up and what she was willing to do for him. But even mm-hmm. she admits that that was gonna inevitably happen anyways. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really it's shows you how many different yeah. layers this story has. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty yeah. good because I, I think I'm, I'm, talking about it with you helped me see some of that, and I wouldn't have caught that on my own. It adds a little more yeah. flavor to it all. Exactly, exactly. It gives me more to think about other than just an action story with assassins trying to kill each other. It really, it elevates it. You know, it does, man. What did you think what did you think of the revelation that that Miss Ranks was being held in a cage by by uh Chester all these years? Did that take you by surprise? <laughs> it did, man. That was uh yeah. again, it's very twisted, I was not expecting so that. I wasn't expecting it either. I didn't think well, I wasn't really expecting to see her again or you know if yeah, we did exactly. see her not for a while at least but to see that chester has already taken his revenge on her for all those years of being in her whatever what do you call it a boarding house i was Group home? yeah when i was writing my notes i had a hard time trying to figure that out i wanted i i was going back and forth between calling it uh, a group home or shelter i think i just stuck with shelter I, oh okay uh, 
or or part of me wanted to call it an orphanage at one point but i was like what is this oliver twist <laughs> yeah <laughs> like i don't i don't even know if that's the proper term that we use for those places anymore <laughs> yeah i'm too ignorant yeah. man although it would have been funny if it was a dickensian style orphanage and what we're really reading is just uh, a 1980s oliver twist <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah i mean the way yeah. that the scene was drawn when she's in the cage uh wearing a, a pig nose thing I had no yeah. idea who that was supposed to be until Marcus said, Mrs. Ranks. And then her yeah. dialogue after that is like nonsensical to me. And then she just dies right away. So it's like, oh, okay. That's yeah. how she met her end. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah. she probably deserved it. it. Was, yeah. It was not dignified at all. <laughs> not at all. Not in the slightest. Yeah. Yeah. And I also wanted to talk about the scene where uh marcus finally does kill chester like that's a you know that's another scene that just points to what i was saying earlier where there are these moments that reminder writes out and he could tease it for a lot more and really play up the melodrama and and this is something that applies to what you were saying earlier too about the scene where maria is having her epiphany but the brevity of the language here and uh what they write in the captions just goes to show that even though this is technically a big moment for Marcus and Chester, Chester, like at the end of it all, there's just something that's just so cold and matter of fact about it that it makes it feel more real. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read the scene. So in the scene, Marcus opens the cage and the dog just jumps on Chester and just savagely attacks him. The like dog's name is him Pepper Mint. <clears throat> <laughs> that i did notice that too but this is what marcus is thinking as it's happening he goes it happens too quickly only slight satisfaction registers a dull half clap somewhere ugly and he's just gone never like the movies never any real drama and then on the next page it goes just the just the end to an inconvenience and it feels like nothing yeah, that's some good writing right There's, there, man. Yeah. And and I think the impulse for a lot of writers is when you write these sort of scenes, the drama is heightened to 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 such it has been ratcheted up to such a point that when these two final characters meet one another for their final duel, it becomes this thing where again, like uh like Chris Claremont would would be too tempted to write them both just you know shouting homeric verse at one another just entire <laughs> soliloquies as they rage against one another but you know he reminder takes the opposite track and makes it a much more subdued experience where he's just saying that this is a intense moment of violence but marcus doesn't feel anything by it there's no he even says there's no real satisfaction to it like whatever satisfaction there is is only slight and i think that's the reality of the situation is it almost feels like when you live as long as you have with hate in your heart and you're con and you're anticipating the moment where you will finally get your revenge and only for it to be so unsatisfying once you've achieved it because all it is is just a cold hard reality there's there's something about that that i just found 
mesmerizing as I was reading it, especially in these this last couple of pages. Yeah, well said, man. Mm. It's that whole idea of violence not being the solution to every problem, you know? Like, for all the problems that they can use it to solve, there are things that violence doesn't solve, and it's going to leave some kind of emotional scar or additional burden yeah. upon them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... <laughs> I have a feeling, I and you know, I, I I have yet to take a poll on this, but I have a feeling that's the kind of thing that are lost that's lost on a lot of people. Even even when you come to a moment like that scene where I described, where someone would read that, I I don't know that people would would have the same takeaway. I don't know that people have, yeah. Um, I don't know that the majority of people would have that same takeaway at all. Probably not. I think they'd just be like. Yeah, for them it'd just be like he killed him. Badass scene. He's a yeah. He's a stone cold dick killer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a reason that that those specific choices of words were used. There's a reason that Marcus doesn't feel anything after all this. And yeah, that final page, uh, that that sequence of events really. It stuck with me, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yep. You got anything else? No further questions, Your Honor. I rest <laughs> my case. All right. Well, I guess we can uh, come to an end on that then. So, you know, if uh, anyone's got any questions or comments, uh, any contributions you'd want to make on, on this particular volume of Deadly Class, we would totally love to hear from you. Hit us up on between the gutters podcast at gmail.com dm us at between the gutters you can tweet at us at between the gutters uh you know whatever uh just let us know and we will try to respond to you and uh you know if you have to be listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on if you can give us five stars or you know whatever you feel we deserve well we appreciate that Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I was waiting for. Did you just zone out? I, I kind of did. I was like, <laughs> well, we all know how, how you hear my voice now. I'm just a drone of bees to you. <laughs> all right, everybody. This is Between the Gutters, episode 162. Thanks for tuning in. Of course, we will return next week with another episode. We will be doing our autopsy on the next MCU movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So we'll see how that turns out. And we'll cover volume three of Deadly Class at some point in March. So stay tuned. Thanks, everybody. Peace out. Good. Bye.